Romans chapter 10 today. Romans chapter number 10. One of the things that we look for when we're traveling and even when we're walking from place to place and especially in areas where we are unfamiliar uh, would be signs. We're looking for some confirmation that we are headed in the right direction, that we are on the right path. It just gives us that reassurance that we're going the right way. What we also know about directional signs is that once we see them, we don't automatically assume that we have arrived. We just know we're heading in the right direction. So quite recently, my wife and I, Julie, we were walking through an airport and we were unfamiliar with the airport. It was a new airport. So we're walking through and we're actually looking for the place where you drop off your bags and you do the ticketing and it wasn't obvious. There were three levels to this airport and, and we entered in the middle level and we assumed that we would see the right place to check in and we did not. So the first thing that we did is the first thing that you would have done and that is we started to look around for signs and then we found them. And so we found the right sign and, and we rode the escalator up to the next level and we continued to look for additional signs until we found the right location. Now, I know I'm being a little bit absurd, but, but bear with me for sake of illustration. When we saw the first sign, let's just imagine now it wasn't, it was, it was up posted on a wall, but had we found the first sign and it was on some kind of stand and it had an arrow pointing in the right direction, but it said ticketing and baggage, no one would anticipate that we would walk up, drop off our baggage at the sign and feel like our task was complete. The sign was never intended to do the ticketing or the, the, the receiving of the baggage. The sign was intended to point us into the right direction so we would continue to land at the place where we're supposed to, no airport pun intended, we're going to land at the right spot. So signs do that. They give us the reassurance. They, they point us in directions that we are understood are the right ones. The Jews to whom Paul is directing his attention had stopped at the sign, but had not followed it on to the right conclusion. In fact, they had adopted signs as their final destination, glorying in the sign rather than in the Savior to whom the signs were pointing. One author said it this way, everything about the Jewish religion pointed them to the coming Messiah. Their sacrifices, priesthood, temple services, religious festivals, and the covenants. Their law told them they were sinners in need of a savior. But instead of letting the law bring them to Christ, they worshiped the law and rejected their savior. The law was a signpost pointing them to the way, but it could never take them to their destination. The law cannot give righteousness. It can only lead the sinner to the Savior who can give righteousness. 
Does this make sense to you? Are you processing this morning? Paul is about to unload his burden for the people that he calls his brethren. Now he's not talking about his saved family, the new family upon which he has entered where he calls God his father and then one another brothers, sisters. He's not talking about that brethren. He's talking about his national heritage, his Jewish kin. And he is revealing his heart for them. My heart's desire, he is about to say. I want you to go beyond the signs that you have been holding to and let go of those things. They're, they're, they're all realized. They've served their purpose. Now the reality is come to whom the signs were pointing. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was helping the church know the difference between just the show of something and the reality of the same. So he says it this way, in 2 Corinthians 5.12, the Apostle Paul said, that ye, may be, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which, now listen to this, glory in appearance and not in heart. Again, think of the, the powerful statement that he made that sometimes we just kind of gloss over when reading through a letter such as this to the church at Corinth. He said, there are those that glory in appearance rather than in the substance, the hidden man of the heart. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been caught up in the trap of glorying in the appearance of Christianity rather than the substance of the same. Hey, it's just us here today, okay? So how many of you have ever had an argument with your family on the way to church ever in your history? Raise your hand real high and just kind of wave it like, brother, that's me, okay. Um, how many of you had that this morning? No, don't raise your hand, okay. <laughs> have you ever had that argument on the way to church and you're bothered at the family. You know, you know when you're bothered at your family. You know, you just not, you're not on really good talking terms. In fact, if it was between a husband and a wife, the husband is driving and the wife is staring out the window, okay? <laughs> Have you ever had that kind of on your way to church moment, but when you get to church and you see the family of God, how many of you have ever like put on something a little bit? You know, you kind of acted like, um, well, amen, brother. How are you today? I'm just better than I deserve, amen? Yeah, right then, far better than you deserve. Do you know what Paul's burdened with right now? Paul is burdened with the fact that he has a beloved brethren, the nation of Israel. And they have stopped short of what the signposts were supposed to lead them to. And now they're glorying in all of those things that picture Jesus. And they actually reject Jesus. His deep burden for the people of Israel is that they would be truly saved. The title of our message today is, My Heart's Desire for Israel. Today we're going to look at three things from Romans chapter 10, specifically in verses 1 through 4. We're going to see this genuine burden that the apostle has. We're also going to see a misguided nation. And then 
we'll wrap it up with a grand conclusion. Let's begin with a genuine burden. Your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 10. Look down at verse number one, Romans chapter 10, verse number one. Here the Bible says the following. Brethren, again, his kindred, the nation, the people of Israel. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, again, we've, we've just found ourselves coming from Romans chapter 9, where it appears we see two contrasting doctrine. We see the word used of, of election, and we understand the reality of God's sovereignty, and we know that we are the chosen before the foundations of the world. And yet the Apostle Paul begins in Romans chapter 9 expressing his burden. Like, I am so burdened for you, I would actually allow myself, were it possible, to be accursed so that you might be saved. That's a burden of desire that people would make a conscious choice to choose Jesus. And then he comes to Romans chapter 10. And again, even though we see this, this reality of, of God is sovereign, he has a right to do what he wants to do with what is his, we also see again this burden unfold. My heart's desire, my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. How do these apparently contrasting teachings of Scripture ever merge? How do they come together? One of those that we have quoted often is that, that man that we refer to sometimes lovingly as this prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Listen to what Spurgeon said. How, says someone, do you reconcile these two doctrines? My dear brethren, I never reconcile two friends. Never these two doctrines are friends with one another for they are both in God's word and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. If you show me that they are enemies, then I will reconcile them. But, says one, there is a great deal of difficulty about them. Will you tell me what truth there is that, not, that has not difficulty about it? But he says, I do not see it. Well, I do not ask you to see it. I ask you to believe it. There are many things in God's word that are difficult and that I cannot see, but they are there and I believe them. I cannot see how God can be omnipotent and man be free, but it is so. And I believe it. Those are good words helping us understand that while things may be wonderfully reconciled perfectly in the mind of God, they do not always find such easy reconciliation in the mind that is finite as they do in the mind that is infinite. Another author wrote, Theologians past and present have been guilty of bending one doctrine to serve the other, which inevitably leads to non-biblical belief and practice. For example, the Calvinist Baptists of the 18th century England believed that evangelism presumed to interfere with God's sovereign predestination. 
When a young William Carey suggested that missionaries be sent to foreign lands in obedience to the command of Christ in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, an older minister scolded saying, sit down, young man. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. Those are dangerous conclusions. God has given you and he has given me a task to perform. And that is go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. Jesus himself says all all day long have I stretched out my hands to you. In other words, I'm inviting you to come to me and ye would not. No matter how you view these two doctrines, the obvious truth is that Paul had a compelling passion to see the lost saved. Notice how this burden is marked with with what we might look at as both a tenderness and a boldness. He begins with the word brethren. And I think that word is intended to soften the approach. He's not coming to them with some brashness, but with some some aspect of, listen, we're family, We're, we're, we're brethren, we're part of the same nation. Have you ever found yourself with a tendency to arrogance, even some hostility regarding your possession of the truth when others have not come to the knowledge of the same? Paul was not arrogant regarding the lost, nor was he detached in his focus on the lost by simply claiming election and that God would take care of his own work of evangelism. No, Paul's overwhelming burden was for the lost to be saved and his tender use of the word brethren shows that there's compassion that at times may be lacking by those who possess the truth. It is one of the reasons why I think that there are few times when just my shouting truth at some passerby is the best way to communicate the love of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul begins with this term of tenderness. He's communicating again his genuine burden. The Jews were holding on to the signs. They had rejected the substance. And Paul has this burden for his people. Now you and I might pause and at least ask a legitimate question here. Because we do see Paul has this genuine burden. Okay, we might ask the question, how do we develop a burden for the lost? How do we? I mean, that's an honest question, isn't it? Because how often do we see the masses of people going by us and and we have no thought about their eternal destiny? You say, you know, I, I, I don't have a burden for the lost. Well, wouldn't it be a fair question to ask God, God, how can I develop? How can I be the possessor of some heartfelt burden like the Apostle Paul had for his lost brethren? Well, the first thing I would submit is why not begin by asking for it? Just come before God and ask him, God, I know you desire for truth to be given to the lost. I know your burden for the lost. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God, I'm asking you, would you grant me some sense of your burden for the lost? In Luke chapter 10, verse number two, therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore 
the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Hey, another question for us this morning. How many of you have ever prayed for something or for someone to fill a specific need? And then you noticed after you started to pray for that need to be filled, the Lord started to tap you on your shoulder. Have you ever noticed that before? Uh, Lord, would you send some, I don't know, would you send some people to sing in the choir? Now, this is the honest truth. I wonder if we asked honestly, and I'm not this morning, but if we asked honestly, who do you think prays the most fervently for people to be added to a ministry of the church like the choir? I suppose it's probably the people that are already singing. And, and then if someone who, who has the ability and appreciates and is grateful for, and they just, oh, Lord, what a blessing that is. Would you send some more people to the choir? And the Lord says, well, how, hey, how about you? Uh, Lord, I know they need people to serve in, in these areas, and I know that we need people to advance this, and I know that... I wonder if we started to pray, not necessarily for the ministries that, that, that help advance God's work through a church, but I wonder if we started to pray about the ultimate ministry that God gives to his children and that of sharing the truth of Jesus Christ with people who are lost and headed to hell. And we just start to say, Lord, I'm asking you, Ask for it. Do you know the next thing that I would submit that we can do to develop a burden for the lost is be attentive to it. He says in John 4, 35, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. He says, lift up your eyes. He says, come on now, get your, get your head out of the sand, so to speak. He said, just, just look around a little bit. We're hearing more today about some sad cultural issues that are becoming more trumpeted. We're, we're more aware. We know that human trafficking has taken place throughout the history of mankind. But I find it, I find it encouraging that we're lifting up our eyes. We're starting to be more and more aware that there are are tragedies taking place against people, sometimes children that should never be named once among us. And we're starting to talk about some things. You know, back in the 70s when, when abortion was legalized, this was this thing that, that maybe nobody even talked about, but then we started to talk about we started to rally around. We started to get messaging out. We started to pray for the unborn. And wow, such helpful steps are being taken. I wonder how often we continually lift up our gaze to fields that are white unto harvest. Have you ever been a little, like, almost shocked or surprised when you dared actually ask someone about Jesus Christ and, and their thoughts about him, and now all of a sudden a conversation just blossomed? You were taken back, like, by their willingness to talk about God, and, and you said, well, what do you believe? And then they asked you, well, what do you believe? 
wow, I, I get to have this conversation. How does that happen? It happens because in some way, shape, or form, we just started to lift up our eyes. We started to be attentive to the opportunities that are around us. Ask for it. Be attentive to it. And then I would just say, attempt it. And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Why not attempt it? Bring someone to church. So I just don't know if I could share the gospel. Bring someone to church. Hey, would you be my guest? I would love for you to be my guest at my church. Would you come with me to church? Pass out a gospel tract. Just a, a simple little gospel tract. Hey, has anyone ever given you one of these? That's a great way to begin that conversation. Has anyone ever given you one of these? Oh, yes, they have. Well, what would you think about it? Oh, well, I didn't like it. Oh, interesting. What didn't you like about it? Now you have a conversation. Uh, hey, has anyone ever given you one of these? Uh, uh, what is it? Well, it's something that changed my life. I mean, it's the most important news. If I was going to give anyone anything, it's the most important news that changed my life. I know sometimes we say, yeah, I had a pizza last week, changed my life. But I'm serious about this. This changed my life. See, those are the kinds of conversations that we just say, I can attempt this. You'd say, well, that seems like kind of a baby step. Well, well yeah, it is, but it's a first step. How do we have a burden for the lost? Ask God for it. Be attentive to it and attempt it. And what do we see through all of this? We see a man, the Apostle Paul, with a genuine burden to see Israel as a nation turn to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We see a genuine burden. But let's go a little bit further in our passage, our text today. And let's notice also a misguided nation. Yeah, we see a genuine burden, but now we start to see this, this guidance system that seems to be askew. This is, this is a nation that has landed on a place that is, it is not a healthy place to land. Look in your Bibles, beginning in verse number 2, Romans chapter 10. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, listen to this, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now Paul does give them some commendation. Paul helps us understand they do have zeal, but sadly that zeal is not connected to knowledge. Do you know, sometimes we wonder, like, why, why spend so much time in a book like Romans? We, we keep walking through and, and message after message and, and, and all of this, this, like, wow, we've been in Romans a long time. We do that because Jesus helped warn us. He helped prepare us. He helps us understand. He said, ye do err not knowing the scriptures. Jesus even tells those that should have been the teachers of the scriptures. He said, ye think ye have eternal life. He said, search the scriptures for in them you're going to find truth that will literally change your life. Well, what did they have? They had zeal, but they had detached it from true knowledge. Zeal for God, I would submit, is a wonderful thing, but it must always be connected to truth, to knowledge. And the Jews basically suffered from two things. When we think about, well, what was, how did their guidance system get, get so off? What, what caused them to go astray? Well, first of all, they had a misguided religious exercise. 
a misguided religious exercise. Paul recognizes this from his own past. He uses himself as the perfect example. Notice what he says in Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse number nine. Paul says, okay, listen, you're misguided. Now let me use myself as as our own example. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse nine. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even unto strange cities. In other words, if I got on your trail, I was not going to forsake it. I'm going to pursue you until I find you. Paul said, listen, I had this incredible zeal, but it was disconnected from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He goes on, Philippians chapter 3, he uses himself here again. Philippians 3, beginning in verse number 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal. Ah, here's our word again. Concerning zeal, who did this better than me? I persecuted the church, touching the righteousness, which is in the law, that is man's law, the traditions, the continually adding on of of layer upon layer, as touching the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. He said, take everything that I was, you add it up over here, and I find that I am absolutely deficient over here regarding the righteousness of Christ. If you want to talk human righteousness, I had it. Listen, don't try to compare stat sheets with me because if you want to know who is it that was pursuing righteousness, you may have attained unto me, but nobody would exceed me. I went in all the way. But what I counted gain for me, I am absolutely bankrupt regarding the true righteousness of Christ. What is it that is happening with the nation of Israel? They have this misguided religious exercise and he's recognizing that the currency of righteousness that he was trying to stockpile would not be acceptable in God's economy. So all that he had done previously, he had to take and move from the profit side of the balance sheet and now place it on the loss side. This is a major exchange in his personal ledger of righteousness that he had been keeping. Now, again, we don't have time to talk through this, but what is the average Israelite going to think of when the Apostle Paul starts to tell them, this is what you have to do? They're going to look at the Apostle Paul and say, he's a traitor. This man is a traitor to Judaism. He's he's no Hebrew. 
He's no Israelite. And Paul says, listen, everything that you hold to, I held to. And all of that, all of that, all of those signposts, all of those externals, all of those things that I was glorying in, but not matters of the heart, all of this, he says, you're not going to find your righteousness there. For an Israelite who grew up, I mean, the laws, the traditions, all of these things, this is where they have their acceptance with God. And he says, listen, all of those things serve their purpose, but Jesus Christ is the reality. You can set all of those aside and choose Jesus. These are huge words for them. Everything about their religious practice, they were equating to, not a signpost to point them to Jesus, but as an end in itself, these signposts are our righteousness. It was back in 1929 when the stock market crashed and now we enter into the Great Depression that a guy named Charles Darrow found himself without a job. He had a wife, a child, he had one on the way, but he had no work and, and he was desperate for work. In fact, he, he took to um, walking dogs. Um, he would be a handyman. He would do fix-it things. He was doing anything he could to try to earn some income for, for his family who clearly were in need. Someone taught him a game and he learned about it or some of the basic principles of it. And so he started to form and fashion his own. In fact, the first time that he, he crafts this, he drew it out on his table, on a tablecloth. So he, he does it circular as, as the, the means of his first one, but he starts to use these things and he takes names from Atlantic City, real streets and such, and, and he, he titles them in this circular fashion. And, and then he starts to carve out little game pieces. Um, he writes out on little scratches of paper uh, the currency of the game. And then he actually started to sell them and they were selling. And, and some of you are already well ahead of me, but he titles his game Monopoly. And he's selling these games. He's selling about two games a day and he sells them for $4 a piece, which is pretty remarkable in that day that, that this game was selling, but he couldn't keep up with the demand. He had a printer friend, which he enlists. And now he and his printer friend, they're actually mass producing six games a day. The level of quality is improved. They're still selling them for $4 a piece and, and they're selling and he can't keep up with orders. He went to Milton Bradley to try to sell them the game, sell them the rights to the game. He would get some royalties and um, they flatly rejected him. Milton Bradley said, There's, we're not interested. He packaged up and sent several of the games to Parker Brothers and Parker Brothers, the, the, the executive team played it for several weeks and they rejected the game. They sent it back to him. They cited over 50 problems with the game and uh, they rejected it as well. A, a, a department store in New York City had a large order they ordered about 200 sets of the Monopoly game. And they were selling, of course, and, and um, a friend of the president of Parker Brothers bought the game. Invites the president for Parker Brothers over, they play the game. It's reported that the president of Parker Brothers was so fascinated with the game that they stayed up until after one o'clock in the morning playing Monopoly. If you signed up for family game night, then please know we're not doing that this evening, okay. 
So he is fascinated with the game. He stayed up. I mean, he's playing this game well into the morning. He goes into the office. This is the president of Parker Brothers the next day to find out that Parker Brothers had sent the game back rejected. Well, after he gave a serious chewing out to his executive team, they got with Charles Darrow. They purchased the rights to the game and um, Parker Brothers began to mass produce. In the first year, Monopoly sold 20,000 games a month and Charles Darrow became the first um, game inventor millionaire during a time when the economy in the United States of America was incredibly depressed. Say, what is it about Monopoly that struck such a powerful chord in the United States during the Great Depression? Well, you could, you could, you could act like you own things. You got paid regularly. You could build houses, hotels. You had power and control. And people loved it and it resonated with, with people in ways that were quite profound during the Great Depression. And, and quite honestly, that's what games are supposed to do. And, and quite sadly, that's oftentimes what man's religion does. Man's religion becomes for us this fascinating game and it gives me some sense of power. It gives me some sense of my own worth, my own righteousness. And, and I can picture things much like a game would picture. I can own something in my own religion. I can have power and authority and sway and importance. And, and the apostle Paul says, those things that I counted gain for me in the game of religion. The picture is something real. I actually abandoned the reality of something that truly is real. In Romans chapter 8, again, verses 3 and 4, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. To what end? that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Do you know what Paul is writing there in Romans chapter eight? He's saying Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled everything that there was for the law to do. And now he is the reality of our righteousness. People did adhere to the law, but to what end? only as an attempt to point themselves and others to the reality of the Savior, not to find their own righteousness. What was the challenge with this misguided nation? Well, it was a misguided religious experience. And what other problem did they have? It was also a misguided, it was also not only a misguided religious exercise, it was also a misguided religious experience. The experience of a committed Jew is very significant. It can be emotional. It is observable. It is oftentimes mystical. And to some, it may even be commendable. But sadly, it is not biblical. 
the scribes always sat in the places of highest honor at banquets and religious feasts. In the synagogue, a scribe would sit this way. A scribe would sit with the scrolls, the Torah, behind him, always behind him, and him always between the scrolls and the people. You say, well, why would they do that? I mean, they're always keeping themselves between the people and the scrolls, signifying, if you want to know what that says, you really have to go through me. Also interesting, in Jesus' day, most, most of the Jews would have spoken Aramaic, but the scriptures, of course, in Hebrew. And so the scribes, now we're the, we're the keepers of the language and of the law. If you want to know what you're supposed to do to please God, you better come see me. Do you know one, one of the wonderful truths that we hold to is, is this individual priesthood of the believer? Do you know what you and I have? We have access to go directly to the word of God and directly to God the Father. It was to these men specifically, these, these that said, we are the keepers of all things good. It's to these men specifically that Jesus gave his harshest condemnations. Woe unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were wanting or entering in, ye hindered. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. In Matthew 23, Jesus gives seven woes unto the scribes and Pharisees and each time pronounces that their religious experiences are nothing more than hypocritical games. No reality producing true righteousness. Do you know, if you have been to Israel, you have probably watched yourself that there is an honest zeal, but not according to knowledge. I have a couple pictures just to show. I, I can remember standing at what we call the Western Wall or the Weeping Wall and watching earnest Jews plead with God for the restoration of the temple on the Temple Mount and all the emotion that pours out at that place. To say that is not genuine would be disingenuous of me. I've watched devout Jews in airports and I've watched them on airplanes as they would don their traditional garments to fulfill their ceremonial prayers. I've watched the Jews study with an intensity that puts many to shame. This picture that you're looking at right now, this is a picture at what is the traditional tomb of David. And they go in there and there are places set up where you can just stand and, and, and study and, and work through your different practices, showing your intensity to God. The little desks where you can sit and study, that they are intense in their study. I, I will say as a little aside, when we look at this next picture, they're not all as intense a student, <laughs> if you notice carefully. That is sometimes an all too familiar picture. Well, what we are trying to say, of course, is, is that they put on their very best. Do you remember when Jesus uses the term their phylacteries in, in Matthew chapter 23, verse number five? This is what we would call the teflon, the teflon. This is a 
picture of an Orthodox Jew that is striving to say, I have to do this to please God. Listen as you look at this picture. Listen to this passage. I'll read it. We won't put the scripture up, but watch the picture as I read this. Therefore, shall ye lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. The Teflon, these are these little leather boxes and inside are the, the scriptures that are written and, and only certain Jews are allowed to write them out and they put them here because these are supposed to be bound as frontlets before your eyes. They are, they are bound now tightly around their arm and then you'll notice it's around the left arm and then the box is pointed inward so that the scripture is not only bound around their arm, their hand so to speak, but also close to their heart. Is this what Jesus meant? Is this where we are to land with our righteousness? These are the phylacteries that Jesus is referencing in Matthew chapter 23, verse number five. This is something that I have found that I do when I am lost. When I'm driving and I am lost, I usually do this and I don't know why. I think it's to try to prove that, that I must be doing something right or I'm trying to, to get to the right place faster. But when I am lost, I usually drive faster. I accelerate when I'm lost, I have no idea where I'm going. Just boom, I'm going to get there, man. You say, well, why do you do that? I don't know. I don't know why. Do you know, I find it interesting in religion that sometimes when we are lost, we seem to accelerate our own righteousness. And we deepen our own lostness. The religion of men will add never-ending laws in attempt to produce righteousness. The Muslim will pray to Mecca five times a day. The Mormon will pursue goodness to become a God. Some religions do confession to men in order to gain forgiveness with God. Others will whip themselves into an emotional frenzy to experience God. Even the devout Christian may find himself in his own misguided religious experience. This can happen by not knowing the word and settling for lesser things or by becoming stubborn, so set in our ways that we unconsciously serve our own traditions and fail to heed the commands of scripture. When a church begins to worship its own customs, it has begun to serve itself rather than God. In a sense, we are driving faster in an attempt to justify our way. You know, this wraps up very briefly with this grand conclusion. It's in verse number four. A grand conclusion for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. He was the answer, the completion, the perfection, the satisfaction. Of course, the moral laws of God remain intact because they're part of God himself. But all the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the traditions, the laws that have been added to and multiplied over and over, the very things intended to be the signposts that led us to Christ, they are completed. They had served their purpose of bringing us to our final destination, to the Messiah himself, Jesus, the Christ. Remember, the sign is not the substance. 
It just points us to our destination, our grand conclusion. And the grand conclusion always culminates in Jesus Christ. Christ himself said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. How many of you have ever cried when watching a movie that you know is not real? It's because an actor portrayed something real and he did it well. She communicated in such a way that we bought in and we believed. We were watching, I'm not using this term in a bad sense. We were watching the hypocrite, the person who puts on something and we believed it. It's easy for us to look at Israel and say, oh, you stopped short of something. You, you, you chose the, the thing that's supposed to represent something as your righteousness. Campus church, may we not settle for the exterior facade. May we not become the great actors convincing others of our own day, trying to deepen in some way, shape, or form our own righteousness. The question that we must ask is, are we settling on the outward performance rather than the inner purity? Is what others see just to show a good performance so convincing that it's moving, but it is not real? What was Paul's desire for Israel? That they would come to the knowledge of truth and be saved. That they wouldn't settle for just the show but truly find the savior. It's possible for us as a Christian to settle for something less as well. Those things that are never intended to replace the greater. The question for you today, for me, have you replaced the savior with the show, the game for the true goal? If so, may we reject the first and choose the latter fixing our eyes on the real prize, which is Jesus Christ, and let nothing replace him.